it's really cold outside. So people were really appreciative. That was one of the key takeaway factors from everything that I'd done. Because I put myself through a lot to do that, personally, emotionally, financially. Some of the stuff that we were dealing with as volunteers out there every day was really difficult to see. But the appreciation shown by people who used the service was amazing. I think for the first time, some people thought, wow, some people actually care. And it was yeah. only a handful of us that were out there, but they could see that we all cared, that we were saying that you matter. That is still a takeaway to me today. Yeah. Good evening, fellow podcasters, fellow co-host, Tom, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, Simon. Very well. And a big welcome to a very special guest tonight. I say very special because I've got to know Peter quite well over the last two or three years with my work with LEAP, the Law Enforcement Action Partnership, who have determined to have our government have a look at our disastrous drug laws as they stand. Peter is probably one of the best-known activists in the country, probably in the UK, because of the work that he's done over the last few years. Welcome, Peter Krikant. Hi. Thanks for having me on. It's nice to see you, Tom. Nice to see you, Simon. Great having you here, Peter, and looking forward to having a chat about what you're up to now, because we haven't caught up for a while. In fact, why don't you reprise for us, because I know you so well, Peter, and I'm so familiar with what you've been doing. Could you take us back to, take us back as far as you want with your involvement with drugs here in Scotland, where we have record drug deaths, huge problems with it, and tell us how your experience over the years of enforcement of drugs on the streets and Peter, I'd really want to take advantage of having you here tonight because it's such a privilege to get you on here. And I'm desperate to learn what you've been doing with the company you're working with now, with Cranston. You're quite a famous company in this field as well. But first and foremost, can you let all of our listeners know that might not know who you are, a bit about your background and how you got to where you are today, going back to whenever you want? But yeah, of course, Simon. I think we've obviously spoke a few times together in different media outlets and it's nice to let the listeners know a little bit more about my personal background because obviously you already know that. But my background and the reason that I got involved in this type of work in the first place was my own personal relationship and experience as a person who uses drugs. I started using drugs at a very young age. You know, there was never any education around how to use drugs. The education that I got was the words of President Nixon were ringing in my parents' ears. We need an all-out offensive war on drugs. And then obviously, born in the 70s, growing up in the 80s, again, the words of Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan and Grange Hill. For those that are old enough to remember Grange Hill, the Just Say No campaign. Yeah. And this was all the education that we got. And I come from a small mining village, small mining community that was impacted by deindustrialization. There wasn't much for us as kids to do growing up. There was a lot of poverty around in the village and in the town at that time in the eighties. It was a natural thing for a lot of us to get involved in taking drugs at a very young age. And obviously the way that drugs are policed and the way that drugs have been policed for the last 52 years in the UK, the chances are that if you're using these drugs that are currently deemed illegal or illicit, at some point you're going to come into contact with police or authorities. And especially at a young age, you get tarnished with certain sort of brushes. Yeah. And that was the case. And drug use, for me, it did become problematic. It became something that, as I, as I said, I had no education around. I didn't know anything about using drugs in the correct settings or using drugs in, in a way that was conducive 
to actually enjoying them. And that's the education that we get, certainly around alcohol. There's always this association with you go to the pub, you have a couple of drinks with your friends, and that's the history from a personal perspective. I ended up homeless, I ended up unhoused, sleeping on the streets, injecting drugs in filthy conditions by the time my teenage years were over. Peter, just to interrupt you there, just to recap very slightly, just a few points. The big problem we have at LEAP, I'm, as you know, I found a member of LEAP here in Scotland, and LEAP is the Law Enforcement Action Partnership which is retired and serving police officers and lawyers and prison officers, all sorts of enforcement agencies now, including sheriffs and people in positions of power, including the, the world advocate, probably, campaigning for changes in drug law reform to address these issues. But one of the big things and one of the hardest things for us is to get somebody to play devil's advocate, somebody to come and support prohibition, somebody to come and support the current position as it is, this war on drugs that you speak about that we've had for the last 50 odd years. So in the absence of that, can I ask a question that rises from what you were saying there about education? Because one of the things that the prohibitionists would always say is if we get children at the right age in primary school, going into secondary school, when they start to go down the wrong roads, as you've just told us, happened to you. Are there interventions then? You're saying you weren't told anything about drugs. You're told they're bad. Don't use them. Just say no. Yeah. And that's it. And everybody knows that's the wrong thing to do with anything for children because then they're going to go and do that thing and try it. Mm. What would you say might be on the prohibition side then here about education? If we did get children young enough and be able to educate them better about the dangers of drugs. Yeah, it's a difficult one because, of course, there's certainly drugs out there that, that carry a higher risk in terms of consuming those certain types of substances. However, like you've said, the prohibition stance of just saying no just simply doesn't work. We're never going to have this drug-free utopian society that some political activists or politicians will try and say that we can have. And we know that these uh, narratives don't work because we've been trying to enforce this war on drugs now for such a long time. It's not made a dent in the amount of people that are actually consuming drugs. And no matter how much we break down the criminal gangs, how many people we send to prison, there's always a vacuum there that gets taken up by somebody else. So when I talk about education around drugs, I'm talking about not a prohibitive education as in you shouldn't do this, but an education as in this is the drug, this is the effects that the drugs can have. And with a regulated system, this is the amount of drugs that you should be taking. And obviously you've not got the risks there associated with the unregulated supply where we never know what the content is. So we're talking about educating people from an early age that how to safely, I don't suppose there's any 100% guarantee, but how to be with someone else, have water, all sorts of things that you can do to mitigate the dangers of drugs, safe drugs. And if they're regulated, there would be safer drugs as well and yes, drug testing and things like that we can come on to. Tom, could you firstly give our listeners a wee background to your involvement here? Because as Deputy Chief Constable of Lothian and Borders, you oversaw a lot of the enforcement that was going on in your area. But prior to that and since then, you've served in lots of advisories and worked in lots of environments where drug policy has been of a prime importance. And throughout your career, like me, in the early days as a young detective, you were dealing with the consequences of the explosion of the drugs market and people trying to feed habits in the late 70s, early 80s. 
can you the prices if you can remember Tom back that far? Can you give us can you give us some idea of, of your involvement over the years and your view of this over the Yeah, I, I, I certainly can. Peter, good evening. I'm very interested to meet you. Yeah, my background is, well, I was involved in the war against drugs right from the get-go. I worked in the North Edinburgh area where train spotting was set. So I go back that far. And I came up through the CID into senior rank. I was involved in drug policy and thereafter worked as the chairman of the Alcohol Drug Action Team in Edinburgh and the Scottish Association of Drug and Alcohol Action Teams. And I saw the futility of our present policy throughout. What I've seen is for the last oh, 10 or 15 years, politicians of all stripes just simply going round the boy and failing to take any kind of action. And what I'd like to say to you, Peter, is uh, congratulations, because actually you have been a significant catalyst for change. You have driven the agenda on, and against all odds, we're actually seeing a bit of movement now. Now, how that movement turns out really is something I want to talk about in a minute. But at least there's movement. And I think you've played a huge role in that. And I think that alone is significant because we're now seeing the Lord Advocate coming out and actually making a statement about what she sees as the public interest, which will lead to the safe room in Glasgow. But can I just ask you, do you know yet what that's going to look like? And do you know yet how that is going to be evaluated because I think we stand at a, a very dangerous time, a hopeful time but a dangerous time because if the experiment succeeds, it will go on to other things and we'll be able to take steps into the dark that we've never taken before. Yeah. If it fails, then we're right back down, back to square one. And so it's really important for me that it's well evaluated and that it succeeds. Do you have any knowledge yet how that's going to be done? Yeah, that's a good question. So I'm, I've visited these facilities in four countries now. So obviously I've got quite wide ranging knowledge as well as visiting sites in four countries. I've, I've read extensively about this and spoke extensively about this with a number of people. Actually, my partner has experience going back 20 years working in these facilities. Uh, she worked in Insight in Vancouver when it first opened in the early years then She's uh, consulted on a site being opened in Colombia and spent time there working on the first injecting equipment provision and then worked in medical models in Barcelona, followed by opening our own site in 2017, which has ran since then for women only, which is one of the key areas that we need to look at. I, when I was in Copenhagen just a few weeks ago, visiting the largest drug consumption room in Europe, age 17, women often don't attend because there's not the same, they don't have a lot of guidelines around that. And there's actually been reports of women being abused and stuff within the site. So it is really important that we get it right. And unfortunately, I don't think, from my opinion, that this is right, what we're doing in Glasgow. A number of factors within that, it's a really medicalized model. We can tell that just right away from the cost. So the cost for the year is £2.3 million based on other models that have been really successful around the world and some that I visited, we could actually run three sites for that cost because these don't have to be overly medicalized. I think they do need to be well evaluated when they're run as a pilot and there will be a full evaluation with that. And again, that will drive up the costs further. One of my other concerns is where the site's being located and Hunter Street in Glasgow it's too far away from where the condensed areas of public injecting are currently going on. 
we discussed previously, Tom, about the prosecution stance and what if somebody's on a train from Edinburgh coming to Glasgow with a bit of heroin and they say they're going to the consumption space. That's a, a very unlikely event because in my experience, people don't travel to use these sites. And the fact that the site in Glasgow is maybe a 15 or 20 minute walk for somebody is actually probably a bit more than somebody will want to do. If somebody's begging in Glasgow city centre, they get enough money, they can get their injecting equipment, they can buy their drugs. Then they've got to walk 20 minutes to use their drugs and then walk 20 minutes to get back to the patch that they're begging on. That's 40 minutes out of their day. And these sites in places like Sydney and places, well, I went to the one in Melbourne and Portugal, Lisbon. I've been to them in Barcelona and, and Copenhagen, where they're always placed as central, where the injecting is already going on. Copenhagen's a prime example. That actually sits directly across from the police station. The windows of the police station look out onto the, the consumption site. And there's a famous quote from the former chief inspector of Thames Valley Police who went over there in 2019. And he said that his colleagues in Copenhagen said, it's the best thing that's ever happened because they no longer find dead bodies on the street. It's important, but Cranston, the organization that I work for, we're very much on the forefront of pushing for another site. And this is one of the things that I think you guys could maybe talk a little bit more about. So the Lord Advocate has given a non-prosecution stance for somebody attending one of these sites. Now, it's not the old days of Strathclyde Police and different regional police forces, it's Police Scotland. So if this guidance is in place for a site in Glasgow, why can't it be used by Police Scotland in Edinburgh as the same guidance? There are a few things to recap on there, Peter, just for our listeners. Firstly, the Lord Advocate's recent proclamation which is in a series of proclamations over the last few years. She's been quite radical and come out, obviously, hoping to turn the tide of enforcement and prohibition. Yeah. Can you tell us what our guidelines were then, as far as Cranston are concerned, what implications that has for the sector, if you like? Because there's a huge sector here of support and rehabilitation in place already. What are the implications of what the Lord Advocate said then for you guys? I think the non-prosecution stands for people in possession of substances accessing a site in Glasgow. For us, the main impact of that is that our argument is why that non-prosecution stance can't be implemented by Police Scotland and other cities so that we can look at opening at least one more site which is run in a different way because we've got from the, the site in Melbourne that I visited, this highly medicalized environment where first time injectors can't use in there, women who are pregnant can't use in there, to we've got these social models I visited in Barcelona where, you know, they don't even actually talk about the consumption, although consumption can happen in there. What they're addressing is the social determinants, underlying factors, the housing, the health and the welfare is the first things that they're looking at. So for us at Cranston, we've got some big meetings coming up in Scotland with the Drug Policy Minister and Edinburgh City Council, where we're hoping to really push forward the case that the Lord Advocate's stance can be used to implement these in other areas. And then the other thing that gets me as well, both you guys, Simon and Tom, about the Lord Advocate in the last couple of years, this whole de facto decriminalization that we keep hearing about, that's simply not the case. There was over 22,000 arrests in Scotland last year for simple drug possession. There's not a de facto decriminalisation. 
a diversion from prosecution is not de facto decriminalisation. There's lots going on with the law advocate and there's things that we can do within these kind of frameworks that we're not doing. And that's the main thing that Cranston are pushing for. Let's get on and do it. Let's not let the Scottish government sit on their hands, blame yeah. Westminster like they did for a number of years saying that we can't do this because Westminster won't allow us. We now know that's not the case. And had this been done, this been put to the Lord Advocate a number of years ago in a more specific way, we could have probably had a few sites in Scotland by now. Can I pick you up on a couple of points there, Peter? I think you're absolutely right. The last part you say is you're absolutely right. The, the Lord Advocate has always had that discretion in the public interest. And in fact, the last Lord Advocate, but one Lord Advocate, Wolf, he actually, without publicising it too much, he actually went a long way to diverting a vast majority of people arrested for possession away from the criminal justice system. But I'd say what you say. But coming back to your first point, I really think that you've got to be careful that you want to start two of these experiments before you've properly evaluated the first one. I think there's a lot of people feel nervous about this. And the best way for this whole program to move forward and there to be an advance in this, and that's hugely important for everybody, I think, not least all, all the, the young people who are suffering here, is for the first safe room in Glasgow to be a success and to be evaluated as a success. And I'm sorry to hear that it's an overly medicalised model, because I know exactly what you mean. And I hope that very much that someone like Cranston can actually get in there and actually change the dynamics of that model and make it work so that other people have the confidence to replicate it across the country. I think that trying to open two centres or three centres, understand your frustration, I think trying to do that, you might end up shooting yourself in the foot. I hear what you're saying, Tom, but I think some of the language that we use is around experimentation or radical or something new and building an evidence base to make sure that these things work. Where We've already got that. Scotland's no different from any other country. Countries that are very similar and actually sometimes more conservative countries like Switzerland who opened their first site in 1986. We all probably remember the stories of Needle Park in Switzerland, where the police certainly didn't go, members of the public certainly didn't go, because it was just a, a park that was used by everybody injecting drugs. Obviously, 1986, that's nearly four decades now. Sydney for over two decades, Vancouver for over two decades, Copenhagen for over a decade. So there's lots and lots of evidence there. It's not an experiment. We know that these facilities will reduce injecting litter. We know that it will reduce ambulance call-outs. We know that obviously people are not likely to die in these facilities. And we know for a fact that HIV transmissions and hepatitis C transmissions won't happen in these facilities. It's the fact that we are experimenting with one single model rather than actually, let's get two or three models up and let's make those models different so that we can truly evaluate which one is the most successful. Peter, it's interesting we're talking about the safe consumption room here. When Tom said at the start that you were to be congratulated, that you've been a bit of a catalyst for the, all the changes that are going on just now and hopefully continue to be so. Can you take us back to you setting up your safe consumption room then? What motivated you to do that? People will Google your name and it's the first thing that comes up. You and I took your ambulance through, or you took it through, and I met you through there at Holyrood. 
a couple of years ago when we sat outside and spoke to politicians out there. Can you take us back to then? What motivated you to do it? How you got it off the ground? What the response was and any data and evidence that you got from that? I moved back to Scotland. I wasn't involved in this type of work at all. I stayed in England for 17 years, moved back to Scotland 10 years ago. I've got a background in sales and business prior to getting involved in alcohol and other drug work. And then five years ago, I got involved. I thought, obviously, I've got my own personal experiences, which I can pull upon in terms of street homelessness and public injecting drug use. But at that point, I had no idea how bad it was in Scotland. And that was five years ago. The first drug death figures that came out when I first got involved was 2016, because they come out a year behind. They were really high, but then they continued to rocket. And the calendar year of 2018, We've seen the 27% rise in drug-related deaths in that one year, 27%. The highest rise in drug deaths since records began. And that was, at that point, we were talking about by far and away the highest drug death rate in Europe. So I started getting involved a little bit politically with this, attending different Holyrood roundtable events. But then I attended the Scottish Government Drug Death Summit held in February 2020 at the SEC in Glasgow. Joe Fitzpatrick's mantra, who was the health and sports minister trying to handle the drug death crisis, the SNP minister, was that we cannot do this because Westminster won't allow us. And I just thought, that's rubbish. And I walked out and somebody in the press asked me, walking out of that drug death summit, what did you think? And I just said, that's a lot of rubbish. We can start a drug consumption room and I'm going to go and do it. Right. And obviously it was in the paper the next day, so I had to go and do it. <laughs> <laughs> I've got too big an ego to not go and do something like that. It was at that point where I was just broken. I was working as an HIV outreach coordinator in Glasgow. Glasgow was uh, suffering from the, the largest outbreak in HIV that the UK had seen in 30 years. You guys will know all about that from the HIV crisis in the 1980s. Now we're having this in the 2020s in Glasgow, the highest outbreak in 30 years amongst specifically people injecting drugs in the city centre. And even at that point, with our limited knowledge of these facilities, I knew that if somebody's using in these facilities, the transmission in HIV is not going to happen. So yeah, I went to my employer who I was working part-time for three days a week, the HIV street outreach project in Glasgow and said, I'm going to start this van a couple of days a week. And they were like, well, you can't work here if you're going to do that. So I just walked out my job and started a crowdfunder. Peter, you said there that uh, there was not going to be any transmission of HIV. Can you just go into that a wee bit more? I, I take it it's because people would have clean equipment to use, clean needles, etc., facilities. Yeah. So that's how HIV spread. Of course, HIV is spread primarily through people sharing, injecting equipment. What we've seen in Glasgow in recent years is a massive increase in people injecting powder form cocaine. And that's a very different drug to inject than heroin because it's much more frequent. People are doing it much more frequently. It's a little bit more erratic. So people are maybe a little bit more likely to share equipment. And of course, if you're using the equipment, on injecting nine or 10 times a day, you've got a much higher chance of transmission. But within these facilities, there'll always be a space which is sterile, usually a stainless steel table or at least a stainless steel tray. 
which people will prepare their drugs on. They'll be in different areas, so people will not be directly sitting together, but people can sit together often in these facilities, but obviously there'll be some sort of supervision going on to make sure that people are not just getting the clean equipment, but not obviously sharing that equipment. It's one of these things about, we look at Portugal, like we often speak about Portugal and decriminalization, which is not the best model of decriminalization, but since they've decriminalized in 2001, and they've really taken it out of the criminal justice system, what they've seen is, again, dramatic decreases in deaths, HIV transmissions, hepatitis C transmissions. Okay, so take us back to your crowdfund. You got funds together and bought an old ambulance? Yeah, initially, actually, I bought an old rusty transit van, a 16-seat minibus. So I started crowdfunding, I put £500. Despite the fact that I never had any money coming in because I walked out of my job, we put £500 into it and we got enough to get this old rusty transit van, which was £2,400. As soon as we got that, I took most of the seats out the back. I left a few seats in this old rusty van, got some tables, some stainless steel trays, and I drove my wee transit van into Glasgow with a self-made sticker on the side saying safe consumption. That was the beginning because when people saw that I was serious, people started donating money. That was great because that vehicle actually was during MOT. That was in the the 31st of August, which is International Overdose Awareness Day. I took it into Glasgow for the first time. The MOT came up in December and it failed its MOT. And it was going to cost more to put it through its MOT than, the, than it was actually worth. But by this point, because people saw it was serious and they were already supervising injections, there was lots of donations coming in, in the GoFundMe page. Mm -hmm. So we were able to go and buy a nice decommissioned ambulance, which cost eight and a half thousand pounds. That for me was a real turning point. It was like a visual representation of an ambulance, which has previously been used to save lives, continuing to get used to save lives. Okay. So there's two things come to mind, Tom, I'm sure you've got questions about this as well. The two things to me are how are the police going to handle this? And how are the street homeless and drug users on the streets of Glasgow city center? It's a community in there. I've worked enough in Glasgow to know about the community. Without going into it in any detail, Peter, you probably know this, that the police, the CID in particular, use that community as a source of information all the time. There's exchanges of information going on all the time. A live and let live kind of policy in there. The same as the sex trade in Anderson and the centre of Glasgow, or the centre of every city in the world, as far as I'm aware. So firstly, how did the street users take to you appearing in the middle of the patch with this uh, suspicious looking vehicle? Yeah, it was a bit of a strange one for many people, but I think it was quite easy for people to start coming along and start actually injecting within the van because I knew a number of people because I was a street HIV outreach coordinator in Glasgow previous to doing that. So I already knew a number of people. And it was a bit of a novelty for some people, I think, at the beginning. Certainly with the old rusty transit van, it wasn't fit for purpose. But as soon as the ambulance came along, it became very frequent. The ambulance is obviously really well lit inside. It's really well heated, great heating system. And we're operating through those sort of January, February months where it's really cold outside, so people were really appreciative. That was one of the key takeaway factors from everything that I'd done, because I put myself through a lot to do that, personally, emotionally, financially, some of the stuff that 
we were dealing with as volunteers out there every day was really difficult to see, but the appreciation shown by people who used the service was amazing. I think for the first time, some people thought, wow, some people actually care. And there was yeah. only a handful of us that were out there, but they could see that we all cared, that we were saying that you matter. That is still a takeaway to me today. Yeah. Tom, you're the divisional commander of the Central A Division in Glasgow, and this ambulance appears in the city centre. How do you handle that? As you said earlier on, we've faced this before with the sex trade and cannabis cafes and various other things. And there is a large degree of discretion, of course, within policing, and, that, and there has to be. The good thing about what you did, Peter, was nothing changes if nothing changes. And what you actually did was you actually stuck your neck out and offered yourself up as the guinea pig. Of course, most guinea pigs don't survive the process of being a guinea pig, but you did that. And I could see it happening when you were doing that, actually. The politicians fell silent, but what they were doing was listening. They were listening to what public opinion was. And instead of there being shock horror at your ambulance appearing on the street, there was actually a pragmatic response of saying, well, actually, what he's doing here is providing a service. And there's a gap here, and why don't we do that? And I think, actually, if they, when the history of this whole episode is written, I think you'll see that in most of these things, there's a breakthrough point. There's a little nick appears in the armor through which this change is driven. And I think probably you bringing that ambulance onto the street and actually confronting and actually doing something and being seen to do something actually was that little crack, which, as I say, makes people think about it, makes people sound out, see what it's like. Coming back to your divisional commander story, the divisional commander has to a large extent got to respond to public pressures. And this is the case in the sex industry, it's the case in the cannabis cafes, in the case of, of Peter's ambulance. So he's sitting thinking, well, what's going to happen here? Is somebody going to phone me up and say, Chief Superintendent, there's people here breaking the law, do your duty. And if they do, then he's got a dilemma about what he does and about how far he carries the discretion. And I'm sure the divisional commander, I've been confronted with these things before as a divisional commander. And what I did was I had a quiet word with the Procurator Fiscal and said, listen, this is the position I'm going to take. What's your view? Informally. And he would say, well, actually, I'm quite supportive of that. I will support you and I will not find reason to phone you up and hassle you, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's the kind of thing that would be happening. But coming back to this business about your role, Peter, I think you had no idea just how important that first appearance of the ambulance on the street was. Because for the first time, this moribund edifice of we can't do anything, we can't do anything, we can't do anything, it was broken. And it's never been quite the same since, because through the cracks have come this scheme that's about to be launched, and we might see changes growing. So, very positive move. What I keep coming across over the last while, few years actually, and I heard the thing on radio about it not so long ago, is that if we look back in history, most change of this kind of thinking, of the thinking that's needed to get rid of prohibition, comes from direct action. And the mistake that most people make is they think direct action means like the eco-terrorists that we have just now. Not that kind of direct action because that actually ostracizes people. It does the opposite of what you're trying to do. 
The one I read about was about access to land down in England. They have different trespass laws than we do here in Scotland. We don't have trespass laws, but they do down there. And this was about people, ramblers and walkers, etc., being able to access ground and be able to walk the countryside. And they're not allowed to do so because of the landowners. And some guy got together half a million people through the internet. Over half a million people descended on this big stretch of land and they all had a picnic. They took their families and they all had a fantastic picnic. Almost 600,000 people. The press were there, the whole shebang. And through that, they got a debate in Parliament about these laws that were stopping people. And that's the kind of direct action. And that's exactly what Peter did when he heard politicians saying, oh, we're restricted by this and restricted by that. Because they were only using that to play politics with. Whereas the direct action, as you say, Tom, cut right through it. So how did the police respond, Peter? I remember speaking to you the day after you were charged by the police at the ambulance. How did all that come about and what was the result of it? It's only just a guess for me in terms of why the police decided to try and intervene specifically on that one day because we had been operating for some time before that day and there hadn't been any signs of any police getting involved in any way. There certainly wasn't a report that day. I understand what Tom's saying because a couple of times the police did come out specifically because somebody called up when they have to attend. If somebody calls up and makes a complaint or an inquiry or says that they want something checked out, I understand that. So I'm not sure if it was a decision made by an assistant chief constable or, or the chief constable or where the decision came from, but it was like a whole out of the blue. This sergeant just came along and was like, wanted to open the van and wanted to search homeless people in the van this day with no reason really to close the service down because the service was never closed down. I think this was always the argument from the beginning. Within the Mistress of Drugs Act, it talks about premises being used for opium to be inhaled or cannabis to be inhaled. It doesn't talk about premises being used for substances like heroin or cocaine to be used and prepared for injection. So we were always saying that, yes, we may not be able to get through the inhalation space, because I'd like to see these facilities as they are in many countries with inhalation rooms as well as injecting rooms. So we can encourage people to actually maybe move to a less dangerous way of consuming drugs. But the majority of interaction with police on a one-to-one -one basis was really, really positive like in terms of the, their own stance. But I'm just talking about frontline police officers who I would talk to, who I would chat to, two young men who were actually on duty in the High Court in Glasgow, which was just round the corner from where I parked. It was January, freezing cold. They're standing on the corner and I went down and chatted to them for a little while. How are you doing today? Okay. And yeah, we were doing okay until we got reassigned from inside the High Court to come and stand here in the freezing cold watching you all day. But it was at that point where there was always officers there, there was always officers around, and they were always kind of monitoring in some way, but monitoring to the point where they would see people coming and going. There'd be no problems with that. Actually, a couple of officers once brought some discarded injecting equipment, brought it up to us because they knew that we would have sharps containers to dispose of it. And we got one report from somebody who used in the van quite often. At the beginning, the first time that they used, they were injecting in the alleyway, just around the corner. And the police walked through and said, stop injecting there. 
there's an ambulance parked around the corner that you can go and use. I don't know if that story is true, but that's what we were told. And from my interactions with frontline police officers, I would have no reason to believe that wasn't true because I think I've only spoke to one or two of hundreds who believe that the Misuse of Drugs Act is fit for purpose. So what happened the day the sergeant came with different instructions that day? My own suspicion is that they were testing the water. They were wanting to put something to the fiscal to test the system. Yeah, and, exactly. And, exactly. Yeah, and get some ground rules here and cover themselves. Tell us what happened, Peter. Tell us what happened. It was a really strange one, Simon, because like I said, there was no warning or any thought that was going to happen up until that point. The sergeant came along, obviously, Seen people going into the van, everybody knew what they were going into the van for. This was a number of weeks after the service had been already functioning. And then he asked to get into the back of the van. Apparently, or allegedly, I obstructed that entrance to the van. I was taken to one side. Once it was safe to open, the van was opened. Obviously, the drugs had been consumed, so there was no longer a criminal offence. But despite that, they lined the three young homeless people who were all genuinely homeless up against the wall and searched them all. And then I was taken to one side and I was charged, not arrested, but charged with obstruction in the course of a search under the Misuse of Drugs Act. Now, I don't know if it was the case that it was came from higher up and it was about testing it, because if it was about testing it, why would they charge me under an obstruction? and then allow me to continue operating the service for the rest of the day. Even on that day I was charged, I didn't close the service. I just yeah. continued to operate it. And the whole report to the Prosecutor Fiscal's office was dismissed. It's actually quite a funny one. The Prosecutor Fiscal's office sent me a letter saying that if I accept the warning, they won't proceed with any charges. I sent the letter back saying I'm not accepting the warning. And then a couple of weeks later, I guess another letter via my solicitor, Amar Anwar, saying, despite the fact you're not accepting the warning, we're still not going to prosecute or take this any further. I don't know if you would have any further insight into that or thoughts on that, because I still, to this day, my suspicions is decision to try and intervene didn't come from higher up the chain. Tom? It sounds a bit odd to me. It sounds a bit half-baked if it was, as Simon suggested, something to test the water of legality. But whether it was a local initiative or whether it came from further up, the effect was still the same because what the Procurator Fiscal said in their response was in fact what the Lord Advocate has recently said, that this is not in the public interest. That's what they said, because if they decide not to prosecute, the Fiscal and the Crown prosecute in the public interest. If they decide not to prosecute, it's either because of a lack of evidence or that it's not in the public interest. And I rather suspect it was because it was not in the public interest. Either way, I think it established some ground rules. It might have been local. It might have been a local decision by some sergeant who just decided to see what was happening. Or it might have been from further up to say, look, let's get some top cover here. Let's see what the fiscal says about all this, as Simon suggested. You're it right, Tom, be, actually. It, it was specifically stated from the prosecutor fiscal that it wasn't in the public interest to prosecute. Well, they are, you see. They are. That was the fiscal actually saying on a local basis exactly what the Lord Advocate has said nationally. That allowed the police then to turn the blind eye, if you like, Peter. They didn't turn the blind eye. They monitored it. They were in the area. They had a presence. But it allowed them to do that in the safe knowledge that a case had been submitted and the fiscal had taken that view already. So it gave them a wee bit more solid ground. And Peter, they would, and they would do that on the basis that really the issue here 
is not one of criminal justice, but public health. They would see it as the public health considerations overriding any criminal justice considerations there were. And of course, this is the big problem in the Misuse of Drugs Act. And when it came in, I can understand why it came in, when it came in, because the situation was very different. But the problem with the Misuse of Drugs Act is that we know an awful lot more about what we're talking about now than we did in 1971. In terms of the law, we still look upon the control of drugs as being a criminal justice issue. When we've known for 25 years that it's not, that it's a public health issue. Point there as well about the whole running of the service. You spoke earlier, Tom, about politicians standing back and waiting to see what happens. Yeah. I think after the police intervention, it was the same. Yep. I expected lots of negativity towards me, towards the service when that story came out, because that was the biggest story up until that point. Even though there was other stories, the front page of the paper, activists arrested, they had to retract it, but it was in the print paper because I wasn't arrested, I was charged. But the reaction when that went out on Twitter, like even on a space where normally you can get lots of negativity, 90% of the interactions were around what are the police doing getting involved in this. There's no need for the police to be involved in this. They should be supporting this. This is something that the politicians should be doing. Prosecutor fiscal softness, the, the Lord Advocate should be supporting this. So it was all positive. And I think that was a big changing point, actually, when the police did intervene. Yeah, I think that's right. Remember, too, that a lot of people who know nothing about the subject at all are sitting back, and friends of mine have said, look, we're losing over a 1,000 people a year, mainly young people, to drug death. Whatever we do, can it be any worse than we're doing now? There is no question of any changes we make must be better than actually just sitting there watching over a 1,000 people dying a year, which is dreadful. If you had a road traffic casualty rate like that, or if you had a murder rate like that, there would be people crying from the rooftops. I think ordinary people were saying, look, this is a change. This is different. It can't be any worse than what's happening now. The answer where we get to that from most politicians would be, we're spending this amount of money, we're clamping down, we're recruiting more police officers. We're, it's all the prohibitionist uh, rhetoric that we've had for the last 52 years. Peter, I do a lot of talks through Leap. We do the round table and anyone that will listen to us, basically. And if they give us a free dinner, then all the better. Yeah. Um, we're always in the marketplace for that. But at the start of the talk, it lasts 20 minutes. We don't go any longer than that because people can't bear to listen to us for more than 20 minutes. But the first thing I do at the start of it is ask who thinks that prohibition is the way to go, that we can win this war on drugs and that we need to calm down even harder uh, on the people that are peddling them. And we get about 90% of the room, given the demographic that we speak to, that by, that give us a free dinner, about 90% of them can still manage to put their hands up and support that kind of position. And by the end of the 20 minutes, we do the straw poll over again, and it's turned on its head. And you're lucky if there's still one or two in the room that are tentatively still of that opinion. And then we get a few questions and, and questions and answers. And pretty much everybody's of the same opinion by the time we leave the room. That seems to be reflected now across our society. Everywhere that we look, it's harder and harder to find any resistance. My latest example being when we did a talk at the Scottish Superintendents Association through in Stirling. And the same thing happened in that room. We got the same voting 
And we didn't get any negative at all. What these leaders of Police Scotland wanted to know was, what should we do with the money that we're going to save on the enforcement that's costing the criminal justice system so much money globally just now? Are you getting that same feel through your work with Cranston and through your work with old colleagues and friends and the work that you do, that we are moving in the right direction here, our mindset as a society, if you like? One day I would think, yes, okay, we're really moving in the right direction. Like people are starting to realize that the war on drugs is a failed narrative, that it's never going to be successful, that the drugs are won. And then the next day, I think we've still got a million miles to go to turn these minds and to show people the reality of a system that is broken just now. So yeah, it's one that in certain areas, I think there's been real progress. But one of my things I was going to mention actually popped into my head earlier when Tom was talking about my health response. And this is one of the narratives that I think that we need to explore a little bit further because for most people who consume currently illegal drugs, it doesn't need a health response and it certainly doesn't need a criminal justice response. We know from most of the independent studies out there and the work given by the World Health Organization, around 90% of people who are consuming drugs that are currently deemed illicit or illegal are doing so in a non-problematic way. Like the famous quote, again, we've spoke here today about politicians of all stripes and colours. Even going back to Labour and Tony Blair's government, you had the famous quote from, I think it was Gordon Brown, it was Prime Minister at the time, from Professor David Nutt, who said, horse riding is more dangerous than ecstasy. And obviously was sacked for saying that from the Labour government. That was true, even in the context of an unregulated supply, without any testing of these drugs, without any regulation with them being controlled by criminal gangs, horse riding is still more dangerous than ecstasy. Can you imagine how much more safe it could become if we knew what was in these MDMA tablets and in these types of drugs? One of the experiences I talk about a lot, again, my partner lives in Barcelona and she runs the women-only space called Metzeneris for women who have survived multiple situations of violence created through the war on drugs. and. When I go out there, I know lots of people that consume drugs out there, but they know exactly the content of them. They know how strong they are. They're all measured appropriately. So they know the measures. It's like going into a bar, right? In Scotland, taking drugs is going into the bar and asking for a whiskey and getting a 75 milliliter whiskey rather than a 25 milliliter whiskey. Whereas if you go into the bar for a drug in Barcelona, you get what you order. They've got an organization called Energy Control out there. All the drugs are tried and tested. Yeah, and that's regulation. Can I just say, Peter, a word of caution. These things can go wrong. And you're right to say, I mean, I've been in Vancouver as well. I was at sites in Vancouver too. And of course, there's evidence that they work. Sometimes these things don't translate. And there are schemes that have gone wrong. Most recently, Portland in Oregon, that seems to have gone wrong because there were inadequate support services attached. To the scheme, and I still say to you, I really hope that you make sure that this Glasgow scheme works and is seen to work, because I think that will give tremendous confidence to take the next step, and thereafter the thing will open up, and our politicians will feel much more confident to take these courageous actions. Because one reason, and I've said this before to Simon, and I've written this too, one reason why the politicians have not been brave enough to take these decisions in the past is 
that they're frightened of the consequences and they do not want to look weak in the face of drugs and therefore giving them confidence that something's going to work and allowing them to step forward, I think is hugely important. And you can do that with your scheme in Glasgow. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we need to create, and this is a, this all links into the same question about the narrative changing, about public opinion changing. We need to, I think, still change a lot of public opinion around drug use as a whole. And when we talk specifically about places like Portland and Oregon, obviously the decriminalisation, which has been a target of the right, right-wing media out there, the simple reality of the situation in places like Oregon where they are decriminalising, they're not putting in the, like you say, the support systems and there's a lack of housing, a lack of welfare systems. Whereas if we look at Catalonia as an example where the drugs are just not, it's not a criminal offence to have drugs or any types of drugs. If we look at examples like Portugal and other examples around the world where there is the welfare and the support systems built in, I'm hopeful that either we will see the UK government after the next general election, because I don't think anything's going to change before the next general election. The rhetoric from both sides, both the Conservatives and Labour, is ramping up about being tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime, things like absolutely naming and shaming people who use drugs, all this rhetoric that we see. Yeah. So after the next election, if there is a big enough majority and the, the party that's elected feels safe enough, at that point to maybe look at some of the evidence, maybe look at not just what Leap are saying, but organisations obviously like Cranston, what we're saying, what Release Drugs are saying, Transform Drug Policy Foundation, the Faculty of Public Health, just to name a few of the scores of organisations that are recommending wide change. And that's where I think I am not a political person. I ran as a candidate for the Scottish Parliament as an independent candidate from no political party. But that's where right now I do get a lot of stick on social media because I support the SNP's drug policy. I don't support anything else and I don't talk about anything else in terms of political policies on my social media, but their drug policy is clear. I was at a press conference where Helen Clark, the chair of the Globe Commission, was there and former Prime Minister in New Zealand. Then we had Madame Dreyfus, the former president of Switzerland. When they launched that strategy, I was clear that this is the best thing in terms of strategy that we've heard in the United Kingdom ever. On that note, Peter, that strategy, the last strand of that strategy, and we've been, we'll go over the strategy so many times over the coming months and years here, but the last strand of it was the one that I was encouraged by because since day one, since I've got involved in this, I've been asking for a grown-up debate. Yeah. for people to put aside the ideology and to get round the table and get some joined up thinking. Tom's taking it a stage further than that and thinks that a Royal Commission might be called for here and might be the most productive way to go. What I'm going to ask you is that last strand called for debate. It called for an open debate. And I don't see any moves towards that by the media. I don't see the government taking any steps to facilitate it. Have you heard of anything about any public debate coming about because of the policies? No. This is the frustration because what they've called for is decriminalisation, but they actually called for debate and to look at around uh, potential regulation within that policy document as well. But the biggest frustration is, even in terms of the 
all the recommendations from all the previous organisations, the Scottish Home Affairs Select Committee recommendations. The UK government have ignored all of that. One of the ones that I thought was really strange, just a few weeks ago, their own Home Affairs Select Committee, which is made up by the majority of Conservative MPs, including some MPs that would be seen as really to the right, like Lee Anderson. They came out with a bunch of recommendations for lots of stuff that have been recommended in terms of decrim and overdose prevention centres, drug checking services, diamorphine treatments to be centrally funded. And despite it being the majority of Conservative MPs, they dismissed it within an hour in the government. So I don't think there's going to be any open debate. I think in terms of Holyrood, the Scottish Parliament, outside the Conservatives, if you look at the Lib Dems, the Greens and the SNP, I think they're all supportive of decriminalisation. Labour and the Tories are still, as I say, on that other side. And I think that is due to, again, the election rhetoric from next year. I think your assessment's spot on. I don't think we're going to see any change at all before the next election. Nobody's going to be courageous enough to do that. I think that's right. Now, I'm not a great lover of royal commissions because I've looked at them working for the last 20 or 30 years. They tend to be very ponderous. They take a long time. But the great thing about a royal commission is that once it's reported, then politicians can, they're like a comfort blanket. Politicians can use them as a crutch and say, it may not be my personal view, however, we've got this Royal Commission and we will go with the thing. And I just think that might make it easier for politicians of whatever stripe to actually take the kind of courageous decisions that they need to. Because the Royal Commission, we need to look at the misuse of drugs act. We need to look at the whole way we look at substance misuse, both alcohol and drugs. And we need to take evidence from throughout Europe and the world, as you have done, Peter. And that's the sort of thing a Royal Commission could do. Whereas I just don't see, even regardless of how powerful a successive government is, I still think they'll have difficulty in taking these big decisions because they're made to look weak by their opposition. and They don't like that. A Royal Commission would give them that comfort, give them that crutch to say, well, Despite what I think, this is where the experts say we'll go with it. So that's why I think a Royal Commission, and only for that reason. Peter, I'm very conscious that your team are playing tonight. And so... No, they're not, they're not my team. Not my no. team. No. The only football that I genuinely really like and support is my 12-year-old's football team. Definitely a politician. What's his team called? Uh, Grahamston. They're really good. They're in the semi-final of the League Cup. That's coming up at right. the end of this month, on the 28th of this month. Going out there first thing in the freezing cold on a Saturday morning is the best football that I've ever watched. The only reason I'm going tonight, actually, to go to the pub and watch the football is just used to go to the pub, isn't it? <laughs> Good enough. Peter, it also strikes me that you must be coming to the age now where you can join us in the walking football, but I'll talk to you about that another time. I was thinking about maybe getting my shin guards out again at some point. <laughs> oh, you would need them. The, the view reason... Up. The real reason I'm drawing a close here, it's not because I've run out of things to speak about, that's for sure. It's because we're actually getting very close to Tom's bedtime now, 8 o'clock. Listen, talking about football, I've got something to share with you. I have only paid to get into one football game in my life, and Stanley Matthews played in it. Uh, now then, there's a football trivia question for you. When was that? They played for three decades. He was one of the longest. Of well, course, I, can, I can tell you, my dad took me, I was six years old, took me to Time Castle to see Hearts play Stoke City and Stanley Matthews was playing in it. He was 55 years old or something at that time. 
Oh. And he came on, and I always remember he was a wee skinny man, tiny wee pipe cleaner legs and big shorts. But you know what? Once he got the ball, nobody could take the ball off him. <laughs> so that's my claim to fame. I've only paid to get into one match, and Stanley Matthews played in it. There you go. I think the interesting work there is paid. Because I worked at football matches in football, and it so much it put me off. I trudged around the outside of the pitch at Easter Road in Tynecastle so many times, I tell you. Uh, That's a punishment. That is a punishment. I tell you, I was once walking around Easter Road, and I was hit on the neck by a pie, which was... It hit me like... I mean, it wasn't aimed at me. Somebody just threw a pie, and I was walked into the way. So it hit me on the neck. And as the grease ran down my, my raincoat, there was a man sitting right at the front, pensioner, and he said, never mind, son, it could have been worse. You could have been made to eat it. Wow. <laughs> Peter, I can't thank you enough for coming on. I'm sure we'll get you again as the years go on, because it's one thing that we know is very dynamic in yeah. the world just now. So thanks for doing that for us tonight. No worries at all. I know just before I go, I'll put a little shout. We've got these overdose prevention centres, hopefully going to pop up at other areas as the years go by. But we've actually developed a new app called the Buddy Up app at Cranston. So you can go to Cranston's website and you can find the Buddy Up app as it can be downloaded. And this is an option for people who are maybe in any part of the United Kingdom that they can actually just be connected to somebody else via the app if they are using drugs and they're using drugs alone. If there is any sort of period where they become completely unresponsive, an emergency activation can be activated and we can send an ambulance out to them. So it's just another option that we've got for people who are using drugs alone. Peter, can I put Chris in touch with you? I'll email you both later. And if you can send him any information that you've got like that, helpline, that how to get on it, what the details are, then when we bring this out, this podcast out, which will be at least six weeks from now because we've got a series starting on Monday, then we can make sure our website's got whatever information you need to be on there and we can put it out across our social media as well. That'd be great. Of course. Great. Thanks, Peter. Thank you. Peter, nice to meet you and good luck. Thanks very much, Tom. Thanks, Simon.